Hey, hello, and welcome to the show. In this podcast, we put the spotlights in the fantastic King's College London community and the amazing work being done all across our institution. Our guests are academics, staff and students here at KCL and from our partners all across the collective industries we're collaborating with. That's right. Our guests are you. This is the King's Court with your host, David Sylvester. Let's do this. Roll credits. As you're probably getting accustomed to, I indeed do have an introductory anecdote of the wonderful time I've had this week. Earlier on during the week, my landlord, I I rent, he he said to me, uh, just so you know, I hope you don't mind, but we'll be doing some electric works on on a Wednesday between the hours of two to four, so there'll be no electricity. I said, oh, sure, that's fine. You know, won't be there anyway, I'll be at work. And uh, imagine my joy when I got home. I I started to cook roast chicken and potatoes and and more. Chickpeas as well, actually, uh, with garlic granules. Very delicious. And halfway through this, and an hour into a washing machine cycle, I get a knock on the door. And it's my landlord. He says to me, uh, Dave, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to have to turn off the electric for 15 minutes. I said, uh... But, what? You, you said you were doing that at 2pm. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing it now. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cooking dinner and I'm washing my clothes. Yeah, yeah, don't worry, it's just 15 minutes. Okay, so 55 minutes later, he finally turns the electric on. So I'm very happy to say that not only was I starving, uh, I was freezing, I was in uh, the pitch black and my washing was starting to smell. So that was a really entertaining evening i had and it made me think how the hell did neanderthal survive because it had been 55 minutes and i was already starting to think can i make fire with anything in this flat anyway enough of that very depressing introduction it is actually an incredible uh coup we've got here for the king's court the guest we have quite possibly has the the greatest resume i've seen in a considerable amount of time. Not to say I look at a lot of resumes, but still, this this is something to behold. Now, she is Professor of Security, Leadership and Development at King's College London, and has been founding director of the African Leadership Centre, which aims to build the next generation of African scholars and analysts, generating cutting-edge knowledge for conflict, security, and development in Africa. The ALC is based in Nairobi, Kenya, and at King's College London. She is the first black female professor at KCL, and also to deliver an inaugural lecture here at King's and has been named in the power list of Britain's most influential people of African origin, including in the top 10 of the 2019 ranking. She's also currently Vice President and Vice Principal International at King's. She has lead responsibility for all international matters at the college. I mean, wow. So, 
Without further ado, here is the esteemed Professor Thumni Onalashakin. Welcome to the King's Court, Thumni. Fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, thanks, David. My absolute pleasure. First of all, how on earth are you doing? How's life? Yeah, life is okay. Uh, I didn't think I'll be saying okay or getting used to living under COVID uh, conditions. Mm. But my goodness, uh, it's as if I've mastered how to do this now over about 10 months or so. Although I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to just a full week on campus, a full month, a full term. You know, it's, uh, it's strange. It's strange, but I'm doing okay. It's good to know. Good to know. And um, it's a classic question, quite frankly. But uh, if you wouldn't mind telling the court more about what it is you do, and also, what and who inspired you to your, your rather storied career into the path of security, leadership, and development as a whole, please? <laughs> you know, saying what it is that I do uh, always has different dimensions to it. But thankfully, at least you know Kings. You're part of Kings. And so you probably, I, it won't be too difficult for me to explain. Imagine me trying to explain to my niece uh, years back. <laughs> and she was 12 at the time. And she was saying to me, Antifumi, what do you do? I, I said, oh, I teach, which was the easiest thing. <laughs> All right, well, what do you teach, Antifumi? I said, uh, you know, um, I, then I thought, should I say security leadership? What does that mean? Then I said, oh, international peace and security. And she says, okay, but wh what, is, what is security? What do you mean security? Mm. And I fumbled so much trying to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I then went to peace. I said, oh, it's peace when there's no conflict. So do you study how to have conflict or how not to have conflict? In any case, uh, yeah, what I do is fascinating to me uh, now. Maybe I started taking it for granted until I became uh, VP internationally a few years ago because I just moved, you know, day would move into night and day again, and I just thoroughly enjoyed moving from the space of the classroom to my research network, to the policy world. You know, I had uh, such, I still do have a, a broad network of colleagues, um, friends, activists, and so on. And so taking the idea of um, peace and stability and how to achieve it, uh, study it, research it in different parts of the world, but in my case, in Africa, but also connected to the United Nations. Mm. And then float some of the ideas in the classroom, test them with my students, research it, and then take it back into the policy space, um, you know, as ideas that can maybe uh, shift the dial. That's always, that's in a nutshell what I do. I have, it's the same idea of trying to build a community of people that share common goals around peace and stability mm. that are individually and collectively successful in society without wars or violence uh, and that this can become a central there can be a central idea um, you know and a formula for promoting this across societies mm. I know it sounds idealistic but in a sense it's not just about studying war and you you know I was a student in the war studies department I started in the war studies department during the cold war Wow. And there was a very narrow conception of war and peace at the time, which only focused on state actors, powerful state actors. But to then see that those conflicts seep into larger society in different parts of the world after the, uh, the Cold War ended. 
was something that disturbed me a lot. Uh, mm. You know, I had a huge network of friends in West Africa and seen how many of them lost um, relatives that were threatened by different kinds of conflict. I really wanted to study that. That makes perfect sense. And I thought actually I could influence spaces. Yeah. So so that that's the idea. But now that I have, so that's my day job in a sense. That's what mm. my research focuses around that, you know, bringing more voices to uh, the all the debate and work around peace and stability. And that's what I try to teach from a leadership perspective. That's impressively methodical. I, I like how you, you go back and forth to kind of hone and evolve concepts and working with different people. That's, that makes a lot of cohesive sense to me. I like to think so, but it's actually, it can be quite complex as well. I, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, some people might wonder uh, why someone would study war studies. And, and, and I would always counter that the best way to understand how to prevent something is to understand why it happened in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that's also, I, I think we're entirely in agreement there. That's what I try to explain to people when I would uh, go somewhere and I would say to them when they ask me, what do you do and where are you within the university uh, ecosystem? And I'll say, I'm in the Department of War Studies. And they'll say, well, War Studies? And you're now talking about development and human rights? And I'll say, yes, <laughs> you have to study war in order to understand how to uh, facilitate peace and processes that lead to peace. Mm. And that, that does lead me towards my next question. It's the fact that you founded the ALC, as in the African Leadership Centre, yes. uh, based here at KCL, and also Nairobi, Kenya. And I, I just, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like I'd like you to tell us more about it in the courts, uh, what it means to you, why you founded it, and what was your basis behind doing so, please? That's, uh, yeah, well, that's very interesting. I would say in a lot of ways, uh, founding the ALC or something called the African Leadership Center, in a sense, a bit of an accident of history. Um, I was at King's and I saw how little of our King's program in the World Studies Department at the time, had Africa content to it, had come from, from Africa, wanting to understand more of my own environment at the time, mm. of military coups. I grew up uh, in Nigeria where... Um, Actually, from the age of 10, I started understanding what it was like to just wake up one morning and the military had taken over. And actually, if you were lucky, people would not be killed. By the age of 11, we had uh, we'd had a head of state that was assassinated and were being shepherded back home from school. So growing up under those conditions in which you eventually wonder um, to wake up and there's a military coup and the uh, you know, the coup makers had accused the rest mm. of, you know, the previous government of corruption will make things better. And then over and over again, um, like Groundhog Day, those things repeat themselves and you can't even tell who was right or wrong. Who's in charge now? What's going on? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I was always fascinated. I knew that I would study political science. Kings had a war studies department and that excited me a lot. Um, but by the time I got to Kings, Apart from a module itself that had um, military coups in the third world for one week and maybe something else uh, for a couple of weeks, there was nothing that focused on Africa. That was one element of it. But I, you know, in my own experience at King's as an African student, or you know, that was more or less an international student at the time, mm. um, I just really wanted to be able to 
create a network of people who would better understand the region um, and understand how to apply some of these you know, theories and concepts in that region. Then suddenly I found myself at the United Nations. And that for me was an eye-opener. I, I had such a different conception of the UN before I went there. And then you realize it's not all that you thought it was. It was heavily bureaucratic. Mm. Um, and you, we had all these wars at the time. When I got to late 99, early 2000, you remember it was uh, the war in Sierra Leone was raging. Mm. Um, the war in Liberia had been going on for many years. But the amputation of limbs, you know, by warring factions, all of those atrocities had become part of everyday scenario on people's TVs or in Newsweek or Time, you know, all these different international magazines. And the UN was right at the core of it, switching from a Cold War framework to understanding that we're now dealing with really recalcitrant non-state actors. Mm. And then I enter some spaces and I expect to see African leaders, you know, really making a case, a strong case for the continent, um, speaking truth to power, all of that. And actually on many occasions, maybe sometimes they did, on many occasions they did not. They were not doing that. Mm. I looked at the corridors, very few Africans that were about my age. I was in my early 30s at the time. That was shocking to me. Uh, that, that was shocking. And I kept then thinking, how do you turn this around? Why are there not more young people in mm. young black Africans in the uh, corridors of power here? You had very old gray-haired men. Sometimes I service the third committee of the uh, General Assembly uh, by virtue of my role in the office of the um, Under Secretary General for uh, Children and Armed Conflict. And you will sit there, people will speak in highfalutin language, um, you know, forever thanking the honorable gentleman from Argentina, from wherever it was, um, mm. talking about, you know, we regret that this situation has happened in the world. There was politics, but then the Africans, either chairs were empty or they were quiet. There were a few good people who would speak up, but for a continent of 54 countries, maybe 53 at a time, without South Sudan. No representation. No representation. I mean, I, I was furious at times, but of course, in my lowly place, as a, I was only an advisor for uh, a program office. I ran the Africa programs for, for my office. I enjoyed that very much, but actually it was a frustrating place to work because of all of the different... I understood the UN very quickly because of all that politics. So I, coming back to Kings, I always knew I will come back to Kings that burning ambition to begin to raise a cadre of young Africans. Yeah, you became the change you wanted to see. Yeah, I wanted very much, but it was quite ambitious, but I thought, let's give it a try. So what became the African Leadership Center was first uh, really a program, which was bringing young Africans to Kings. We piloted it for three years um, because on the continent of Africa, you had this young, bright people some had opportunities, many didn't, but they had a sense of the change they wanted to make, but they were not well versed in international peace and security discourse. Mm. So they couldn't do what I did as a war studies graduate at the UN. And I wanted to give them the ability to, you know, analyze from that perspective. And that's why the security development nexus has been very strong in my work, because I don't see you know, there's a seamlessness between what makes you feel insecure and what makes you feel secure. It's the other side of the coin. Absolutely, completely. And so that, that's why it started. Professor Laurie Friedman, who uh, at the time 
in the Department of War Studies was really was the champion of many of us uh, that had bright ideas, who was head of department, then went into school, by this time was vice principal. And so uh, he was really in many ways my co-conspirator trying to help with the fundraising, but I got some initial grant to pilot those three years. And so he would go help with the fundraising. Uh, another vice principal later, actually, I never thought even dreamt, was not even planning to be vice principal at King's. It just happened overnight. Uh, Keith Hogarth was vice principal before Joanna Newman, who my immediate predecessor. So all these guys saw, they, they loved what I was trying to do and they rallied, you know, in different, in their own different ways. Mm. And so at some point it was obvious that this three year program, we, we invited young Africans to apply for the first fellowships we had three places, 215 applied. The following year, 400, 500. So imagine the scale of the need. And we could only take three people. Um, and so that, and then the Carnegie Corporation of New York came in big time to support us. And they have supported for the past 10 years. That's so cool. Substantial grants. Yeah. So, so the, that's, we then called this African Leadership Center at the end because it was about leadership, albeit from a, a peace and security perspective. And in due course, people said, how can this thing be really African if it's based at King's College London? And I saw sense in that, actually. Um, you need to locate something that is for Africans in Africa. Mm. And because you have anything from three to 10 or 12 fellows a year, you cannot affect the continent in that way. You need to bring thousands. And that's why, you know, that's, the, that's what's burning bright in my head even as I speak. How do you scale up a bright idea that everyone is responding to and saying this has changed our lives. Every fellow, we have trained 120 something fellows in the space of um, 10 years. This is the 10th year of the ALC of its establishment. The fellowship program existed before then. And we don't have enough. Hundreds keep wanting to come to the ALC. How do you do that? you know, with just a, you know, small view. This whole story is incredibly cinematic to me. I mean, the origin, you know, being at the UN and seeing these things that were lacking and what you could bring and now you're being over-encumbered with students, it's, it's inspiring, quite frankly. Thanks. It's very inspiring to me. It's still one of the things that gets me up in the mornings, you know, to see people's lives transform because it came on a program mm. that really gave them the possibility you know, of thinking differently about the challenge and about problem solving. And this leads us on to the next segment of the show, which is something that we like to call Let's Talk. And for me, you lead slash have uh, two on-campus programs, the MSc in Security, Leadership and Society and the MSc Leadership and Development courses, which have uh, been running on campus for about seven years now. Yes. You have a new course coming up, however, Global Leadership and Peace MSc. And it's a collaboration between Peking University and eight African partner universities, understanding the nexus between leadership, peace and development, uh, transformative thinking and approaches to leadership, peace and development, interrogating the relationship between leadership theory and leadership and practice, so, uh, if you wouldn't mind, please uh, tell us more about this. Right. Uh, no, no. This is uh, this is an interesting phase in all of this because um, I have to say that at King's, it's going to be global leadership and peace. In all those other universities, they would use the global leadership and peace idea 
to build their own degree programs. Uh, and so you, you can imagine, uh, as I was saying earlier, that we still have a demand from thousands of African uh, students for the fellowship program. Oh, wow. And yet, we have only very few spaces for them uh, at King's. That's number one. Number two, it's not about the King's element of it. It's about being able to create that kind, those, this set of values and that kind of capacity across a continent of 1.2 billion people, where people have an average age of 19. So you've created the template effectively. Absolutely. So it's a template which we do several things. As a matter of fact, the first thing you would do is bring some of our some of the people that studied on this program before across a number of African universities, eight African universities in in total actually, and we've had fellows who've come to King's and studied with us at ALC or in World Studies Department and so on. And they understand actually the mentoring program of the ALC, the leadership development of the ALC. Some of them are now based in different African universities. And on the continent, there are not many places still who give degrees related to peace and security, uh, let alone leadership in the context of peace and security. There's a historical reason for that. And that historical reason has to do with uh, the fact that you had all these military and authoritarian regimes, um, even if they were civilian authoritarian regimes, peace and security, security was not something you studied on the continent of Africa um, in, you know, in many, many places. Very few places mm. did it apart from defense colleges. So still today, you don't have many programs along this line. So the idea is to bring those young people together in the early career stage to co-create a number of modules around this question of leadership, peace, and security, or leadership, security, and development. Mm. But with peace at the core of it. And when they co-create, they take it to their own universities and we would do it online and blended. Online, therefore, mm. that co-creation, it will be accessible to hundreds of thousands of students. The average age in Africa is 19. And you have 65% of the people on the continent less of 30 years or less. So, so there's a demand for a new kind of way of problem solving, which is what we're trying to do to help them create a community online. Makes perfect sense. To respond to the global challenges of their times. But in, in modules that can be offered in university spaces, then they can do any other thing in the university uh, and create a degree. The degree can be peace and development, peace and security, whatever it is. At King's, ours is global leadership and peace. But we'll share some models in common that were co-created by those partners. Speaking about modules in particular, one part of the course will be a module on the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is a, a real point of interest for me here. Uh, belt is short for the Silk Road Economic Belt, referring to the purpose-proposed overland routes for road and rail transportation through the landlocked Central Asia along the famed historical trade routes of the Western regions, whereas road is short for the 21st century maritime Silk Road. So, I tried to encapsulate it there, but if you don't mind, please uh, tell us about the Belt and Road Initiative. So, it's interesting, the Belt and Road Initiative, which this particular program is a joint initiative of uh, the British Council in China, but in, between China and the UK. And the British Council funded this program for different universities um, 
across the world, especially if you're from the UK, uh, from China, and you are located somewhere along the Belt and Road, as which, as you've descri uh, described, is an attempt, uh, in a sense, uh, th this is China's own vision of the world today, uh, which in it's already now, you, we can see that it's envisaging a recreation, a different kind of formulation of the Silk Road. Mm. And that's really a foreign policy, a huge foreign policy initiative. I think it's obvious that the UK government uh, is also moving in the direction of partnering with China, uh, not to be on the margins of uh, such an initiative. Mm. In many of those countries, the UK is also present. So it's that kind of partnership, but it's an educational partnership. We were allowed to create our own vision of a program that will connect universities in China, in the UK, uh, with African universities. And from a King's perspective, what we simply did was to connect the partnership that we already have with PKU. Uh, King's has a strong relationship with uh, Peking University, and that has been years in the making connect that partnership with the same universities where our fellows have come from in Africa. So this gives us a chance to build on all of that uh, earlier work of the African Leadership Center and look beyond it. Mm. That's the kind of vision that if you have cohorts of young people who can co-create um, an education program, then they can problem solve together. And a key part of that education program is global problem solving. That's what connects the Belt and Road uh, very strongly with what we already have at King's uh, at the ALC. Mm. In the COVID period, we have had, instead of the physical meetings, online we're doing the same. King's Online is part of this, helping us learn to place all of this online. I think it can be massive, that therefore all of a sudden this is accessible to many young people who would come to university across the Belt and Road, across the Atlantic, um, and I think this can extend very much to other parts of the world. Any young academic that has co-created this program can teach any student from any of those countries. It's, it's, it's very interesting you should mention this because considering you introduce unconventional methods like debates, video analysis and simulation exercises into classroom teaching, how has the pandemic affected your work? <laughs> in, in a variety of ways, I have to say. It started. Yeah, I've heard that for a while. The builders here, they, I've had in this apartment block, they've been doing some building and I was hoping that today will be one of the quiet days. Do you want to be on the show, builders? Is that why you keep making noise? <laughs> I would have expected to have gone to lunch by now. Oh, man. Oh, he stopped. He stopped. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> it's just unbelievable when you think you have the best of spaces. The things you didn't anticipate uh, will be issues. We've had to really get used to working online. That's, you know, that's been the tone of the pandemic period. Uh, having, having to do some of this online, uh, speaking to students whilst there's a lot of banging or drilling <laughs> going on. That's a challenge uh, and a half. But otherwise, it's been an opportunity to innovate in uh, so many other ways. Uh, take, for example, on, our, on the master's program, we would twice a year, close to the start of the academic year, have what we call a leadership weekend. So we've built into the program that we'll take the class um, on an away day. Or, and this last year, we had an away weekend. We went to an estate outside London. I'm just brought facilitators 
to run scenarios, exercises. You know, the class, they get to know each other. They would give them leadership scenarios. Mm. They create their own scenarios and ideas of how to change, how to respond to different global challenges from climate change uh, to migration to all sorts of things. And after 48 hours, you can actually see, you see the points of transformation in the classroom. We prepare them for what if these are the sorts of positions you get in the world in an international organization or starting your own thing and so on. Um, they all get to know each other and they'll be from 15 or 16 different countries, you know. So how do you do that online with the same kind of results? Mm. That's what we've dealt with. But even now we have assumed that there would not be moments to have those face-to-face -face sessions. We're still hoping that in term three we might have one of those sessions. But already we've built in three-hour workshops, half-day weekend workshops into uh, the online program. Uh, breakout rooms, even from the start, um, going into lockdown, we changed our exam questions com considerably. We gave them an open question for 48 hours with a global problem, COVID-1. They would give them three global problems uh, and they would go and respond to it and create a video, uh, create five-minute videos to talk about their own ideas for res uh, responding to those uh, problems and then 1,000 word statements as to why they chose those, you know, why they decided the ways that they did. And actually, it's, we didn't do that previously for exams. Mm. And doing that just really changed the face of the program. Um, we ran dissertation sessions. And you would think somebody would take home an exam for 48 hours and that would make it easier. We said to them, you know, read everything you want, consult, you know, but your decision is your decision. That is your perspective. As long as we see you on video talking about those perspectives and a written paper from you telling us why you chose to respond the way that you did. And so at the start of the academic year, we asked every student to just upload their own videos one minute about themselves and why they chose this program. Mm. And we as faculty did the same. This is who we are and this is why <laughs> we're here. I like that. Uh, you know, because a difficult issue though is that you're teaching a class and everyone is buried behind their cameras. They don't switch on the cameras and the different reasons why they don't switch it on. Those in Africa might not have sufficient bandwidth and the network is unstable. Uh, those in other places might have. So in order to get people to participate, those breakout rooms are important. But also we we started, uh, you don't introduce yourself. Somebody else introduces you. That shows that you have watched my video. Uh, mm. <laughs> and yeah, you good. know, so you have to find creative ways, and we're continuing to work through it. It's, uh, you know, for for a program that promises personal transformation for the student in order that they can transform their own world, we have to find creative ways to do this. So music becomes even more important than before. Um, historiography of the subject, uh, getting the students themselves to present, you know, things from their own worldview. Um, but we're lucky that actually you can see when the student has read material, you put things on YouTube, you put different uh, materials that will be interesting to them uh, in addition to the lecture. And I think the moment they realize that you know whether they read it or not, just on their own volition, <laughs> they, they engage this phase. It's not easy though. We, we're always having to think on our feet. And in creating this program with the, um, our partners in China and our partners in Africa, we're going to there, therefore get creative with bringing facilitators from different parts of the world online to have these um, uh, three-hour workshops with many breaks in between, but with um, co-created content and problem-solving content. 
we would have to do a lot more of that, a lot more of the short videos that the student also learns, you know, the elevator pitch that you say, you know, if you met the UN Secretary General in an elevator and you would have only one and a half minutes mm. between that first floor and the 30th floor, wherever it is uh, that you meet them, uh, whether at the UN or not, what is it you want to say? How do you construct your own argument about the state of the world you want to change in a very short period? So don't give me mm. videos that are, you know, uh, X number of minutes, say 30 minutes, one and a half hours long. Um, make it short and sharp or just break it down to different things. And it's easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah, I love how exciting this sounds because it's evolving kind of before our very eyes. And I, I really think it's important to have things be palatable. I think it probably keeps people's attention that way as well. Because the, the more technology evolves for the better, mm. uh, it's also really taken a lot from our attention spans as a whole. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, it would take about an hour to load a single internet page. Mm. And I was fine with it because there was no other option. But now yeah, I'm w looking at YouTube and there's a 10 second advert and I'm swearing my head off saying, skip, skip, skip. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So yeah, I, I just, I love the way that you're really evolving things and uh, finding ways to uh, utilize the, the internet and online facilities and just kind of have people engage and even things like just introducing someone else. You, you have to do a mm. bit of research and that connects you in a way that you, you can't do ordinarily. Absolutely. So yeah, kudos basically. Oh, thank you. But I have to say the biggest uh, gift of this COVID period, and, and I didn't think I'll find myself saying that, it's the kind of global reach. We've been able to get people that would not normally, we have uh, a network of mentors normally, about 70 of them, close to that, on and off, um, that come to the ALC, mm. so that we can reach those 70 and more because of the virtual space has been amazing. Uh, we have managed to do so much more than we will normally do. So a mentor can sit in New York at the UN and is speaking to the students in real time. They can be in Tunisia. They're speaking to the students in real time. Australia, you know, so uh, that, that's been very good. Yeah. So true. It's a definite silver lining to the, the pandemic. Mm. It's a, a second meeting ground for us all. And it's interesting you should mention uh, mentoring because now this leads us into our next segment of the show, which is something we like to call up close and personal. And you're very active in supporting the Race Equality Network. You offer support and mentorship and cultural competency is at the very core of KCL's Vision 2029. Uh, what does cultural competency mean to you? And mm. what are your goals of this place? Thank you. Thank you. I hadn't even brought that into uh, the discussion since we started. And yet, in a sense, um, maybe I should also try not to always take it for granted. In a sense, it's embedded in this whole notion of uh, global leadership as well, because mm. um, global leadership has complex as it is to explain or leadership itself as complex as it is to define or to to understand it's essentially part of our everyday life we will change is so central to leadership our situations will change whether uh, locally or globally and somehow we need to solve problems 
literally at every stage uh, of our development as individuals and collectively as human beings. And somehow our success in solving those problems, whether as a university community or as a the broader society, depends on our ability to see that problem from many different perspectives. Mm. Um, what migration means to an African is so different from what it means to a European. It's so different from, and we have seen that what COVID means to a black person of a particular class is different from what it means to people of other races, of other classes. What a question. Yeah, and cultural competency at it, in its simplest form, it's why I love to describe it like that, and I think you know many people do uh, as well, is the ability to see the world through the eyes of another. Mm-hmm. But that other, is the crux of the inhumanity that we see around us. Because the moment we see the world only through our own eyes, through the eyes of people who look like us or come from where we come from, we have failed in achieving that peace and stability for the world. Absolutely. This structural violence that we talk about in terms of whether we see it in uh, form of police brutality, or we see it in, in, in the form of lost opportunities, it applies to everyone. It, it's present everywhere. And I think race brings it out the most, but it's not the only thing. And I, I have been strong. And of course, I, I, it's a, I've been strong. I'm very proud of what the Race Equality Network is doing. Uh, uh, in, in a university where I was a student here three decades ago now, uh, that I first started at King's, I have seen how we are we are coming to our own and not shying away from the fact that the King's has always been a university of the privileged, a college, a college for the privileged. But even mm. as much as it has been, and it's been predominantly white, and that's what that's the environment in which it was created. There's no need to keep returning to that all the time. But in the 21st century world, is one of the most diverse campuses that we can find around. And I've been to many, many campuses. Mm. King's is truly diverse. Look at the uh, population of our BME uh, students, especially the home students, more than 50%. Awesome. So we have no excuse to not change our system to serve the, you know, to serve the whole. Yeah. It's not even a matter of serving the majority, to serve the whole by bringing a value, uh, and this value of cultural competency and the other one of global problem solving. I was deliberate in putting them at the heart of our internationalization strategy as a core part of Vision 2029 because it came from our staff and students. I've been at King's for a long time. I've seen it change. And many times I'll, when I say to people, it has, we've come a long way. It has changed for the better, and it's true, but it has so far to go. Mm. And we had grappled with the question of gender before Athena Swan successfully were advancing the fact that we have more women in senior leadership than I than anyone cares to count these days. It's a, it's a testament to that. On the race question, we're not where we should be. And I, I think that um, at the same time, I. I've always thought that if we focus on race only, we have missed it. It's a way of ghettoizing the question of race because we can easily invite the university and other authorities to say, oh, we've done this. And so before long, we just get some superficial, you know, Mm. 
And complacency comes with that. And it comes in. And the next thing that we have to deal with becomes class or disability. Mm. And I've always believed firmly that we need to tackle all of these inequalities at, at once. And the focus on race is a, gives us a moment of opportunity because of the developments globally to use this as an entry point to bring an, to bring equal attention to all forms of inequality. And cultural competency, therefore, is not just about thinking and saying we agree. It's about building it into our curriculum so that mm. that worldview, expansive worldview, is available to our students and our lecturers as well. So when people talk about decolonizing the curriculum, for me, that is one of the best entry points to decolonize the curriculum because that decolonizing the curriculum, we might argue about it till we're blue in the face. It's about power and privilege. It is. It's about ensuring that we do not, whether you know, whether intentionally or otherwise, make the make the life of others worse off than you know, for mm. make life worse off for one group than for others. And that is something that institutionally we have not embedded. We're on our way to doing it, but we haven't embedded it at King's. And yet we have, you and I know that we have loads of great people, decent people, friends. But if we're not conscious about how we reinforce inequalities, we will be doing a service to ourselves and to the entire university. And that consciousness is what it's important to build into our programs. It should be possible for every King student at the point of entry in year one or master's level or PhD level to be offered a cultural competency program, a course that you attend. It should be possible, I think, for every King staff member that is coming to King's for the first time to also do that as a matter of course. And it takes time. It's about culture change. But if we don't change the culture of our university when the society around us is changing, when a new generation, Generation Z, is making so many demands of us uh, for social justice, um, among so many other things. If we don't change the culture of our university and consciously do so now, I think by 2029, we would have done ourselves a disservice if we don't do that now. Now is the time to do it. You would be left behind. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm convinced of it that will be left behind, but also Vision 2029 provides us a big opportunity to change things. It's one of the things mm. I've loved about what we've done the past five or so years. I, I think it looks good for kings and it will take us places, but we need to, we need to do something uh, more consistently because we do do things. We, we should be more consistent to deal with structural change. I, I couldn't agree more. That's a challenge I've taken upon myself, of course, yeah. Uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> <laughs> but that crown should be shared. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Multiple crowns. Crowns for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> or, or maybe just a medal or something. I mean, I just, I, I really love hearing this because understanding someone else's perspective is is the best way to evolve and to prosper as a people. Mm. Super beneficial, I find, because we're, we're all stronger. We're all stronger together. A machine is only uh, the sum of its parts. And if there's a weak link, then the machine's not going to work. But anyway, we have one more round now. And this is a wonderful word association game that we like to call what? Now, Professor Funmi, if you don't mind, I am going to read 
uh, word after word, and I want you to mm. just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. And there's no wrong answers, so it's all good. And I'm I'm very excited to see the first thing that pops into your mind, if you don't mind. <laughs> all right. Okay. Excellent. Are you ready to wonder? Let Let's try. Yes. <laughs> let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Leadership. Community. Progress. Change. Conflict. Unity. Aspirations. Opportunity. Focus. Mm. <laughs> that is an issue I have. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Concentration. Jollof rice. Oh, <laughs> elegance. <laughs> Delicious elegance. Absolutely. Africa. Oh, diversity. United. Success. Culture. Fairness. Nigeria. Teaming. Determination. Mm, aspiration. Wonderful. And so concludes the word wonder. And we are also now at the end of the show. So I just have two more questions for you. And one is, do you have anything coming on the horizon that you might want to just plug basically to the court and tell us about? Ah, interesting. Lots of stuff. Um, personally, I'm a closet poet. Nice. But I'm also a closet writer, writer of things that I never get into the public space that emanate from either my field trips, um, various pieces of research that I never really used or published in the way that I wanted. Mm. And suddenly I see that this, um, from my own learnings of this COVID period, I think being able to talk about those things is why I enjoy the, I really I have enjoyed this conversation I've had with you. Thank you. But I wanted the ALC Pan-African Radio to be a platform where we can actually bring some of the thought leadership to bear in different ways. We've used it as education program for our fellows, but that means being able to bring different voices, voices that are not often heard into a space where we have a true dialogue about uh, the future of the continent as far as peace and security goes. Mm. Maybe this is also something that we can end up transferring to, I mean, uh, transfer to our students. But I'd like to do a series, just a few, uh, starting uh, from next time. Bring unheard voices, but still voices that are very important because they have something different to say about a body of future global leaders. And that will help, uh, I think, in a sense, the one thing I hadn't talked about, which is the Principal's Global Leadership Award. And that's actually how myself and Principal Edward Byrne met because I was running the Leadership Masters and he brought the Principal's Global Leadership Award to Kings. The notion of global leaders of the future, problem solving, mm. and that we have tapped into that. Uh, it, the, this will become one of the core uh, one of uh, the big models of global leadership and peace as a standalone. We've tapped into that, but I want to listen to future global voices, rarely heard, but profoundly change-making. I want to create a platform for them to be heard differently. And I think, you know, ALC Radio, Pan-African Radio offers a space uh, for that. That sounds great. Uh, that's, uh, and I can do that without traveling abroad or doing any of the crazy things that I normally do. Yeah, I mean, it, we would love to, uh, if there's anything we could do to collaborate over that, that would be fantastic. 
I think I, from what I've heard and from what I've, I've seen a couple of your uh, Queen's Court programs, I think there's a major opportunity for us to collaborate and I look forward to, to doing that. Mm, sounds fantastic. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about this. This is very exciting. And uh, finally, final question is, where can we follow you, as in social media, etc.? Ah, right. Okay. I'm only present in one place on social media. And that's pretty recent, actually. Uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter. At Fumi Olonishaki. But also uh, Fumi Olonishaki.com and theafricanleadershipcenter.org. Cool. Well, uh, quality over quantity, I say. <laughs> Thank you. And... Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I have to say, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been really uh, illuminating for me, for want of a better term. Uh, I loved hearing about what's driven you and seeing where you're driving to. And it's, yeah, it's, it's inspiring, it's cool. And uh, let, let's collaborate more in the future because uh, you've been oh. a fantastic guest. David, thank you so much. Thanks to you and George. Thank you. So without further ado, Professor Fumni Onola Shakin, you may now leave the King's Court and you rock. <laughs> Thank you. So do you, David. Thanks. <laughs> well, that was fantastic. What an excellent interview. Uh, I look very forward to working with Fumni in the future, quite frankly. That was that was badass. Now as always, we want to hear from you. We want you to reach out to us. Maybe you want to be a guest. Maybe you know someone who'd be a good guest. Maybe you have a good word for word wonder. Either way, get in touch. At the King's Court DS at gmail.com, at the King's Court DS on Instagram, at the King's Court DS on Twitter. Get in touch. And I just have some parting words. It always seems impossible until it's done. Keep on trucking.